Weddings involve a lot of big decisions. If you've been married, maybe you remember yours. If you've never been married, maybe now you might think about what decisions you might have to make. For example, who do you invite on the guest list and who do you leave off? Who will be your bridesmaids or groomsmen, ushers, best man, maid of honor? But I think we all realize that the biggest decision for our wedding day isn't the guests or our groomsmen or our bridesmaids. It's who we're going to get married to. It's a pretty big decision. Last week we were at a wedding in John chapter 2. At least we were at a wedding in the story of John's gospel, starting off a new series called Meals with Jesus. At this wedding, the wine ran out. As we looked at last week, this was a huge social problem that would have brought a lot of embarrassment and disgrace on the groom's family in particular. Jesus' response to finding out that the wine ran out was to tell his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Some have suggested that as Jesus is saying those words, he is a single man thinking about decisions he has to make for his own wedding, which is why he used the rite of purification jars and talked about how his hour, the hour of his death has not yet come. And it's all foreshadowing his own wedding day and the great cost it will be for him to provide everlasting wine for his wedding banquet. The passage we're going to see is going to pick up right where we left off in terms of the theme of Jesus inviting, talking, thinking about his wedding day and what it will take for him to provide everlasting joy to those who will come. Let's turn with our Bibles open to Luke chapter 5. Part two of this series is going to take the first meal we see of Jesus in Luke's gospel, and then from the rest of these weeks, we will continue in Luke's gospel at several other meals or phrases that are used about Jesus along these lines. We'll start in verse 27 and read through 39. Luke chapter 5, found on page 861 in the Black Bibles around you. Start in verse 27, and we'll read down to verse 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. I think if we were to sum up how these scenes and the teachings of Jesus, what is happening here is that Jesus is inviting everyone to his wedding. Or, in other words, when I say everyone, I mean he is inviting a large amount of people from a large context, socially speaking, to his wedding. It is an inclusive wedding. Jesus is inviting. Look at verse 27. This is how the story starts out, that Jesus saw a tax collector named Levi. He's sitting at a tax booth And Jesus is the one taking the initiative. He is pursuing Levi, and he tells him to follow me. Here's the invitation, come follow me. The question I have is, follow him to do what? And there's a lot of different ways to answer this, but I think if we were to just sum up this whole section, we'd say he's inviting him to be a part of his wedding. This is what he has in mind, as you see later on in verse 33, when he gets the response of those people. It says, they most likely these grumbling Pharisees and scribes that are concerned and wondering, why is Jesus not fasting? And he says that the bridegroom is here, so his guests, his wedding guests, don't fast. Instead, what do they do? They feast, and that's exactly what you see in the middle of this story. So from the invitation to come to the explanation that Jesus is the bridegroom and that his disciples are at his wedding, therefore they should feast, not fast. Look at what they do in verse 29. Levi makes a great feast in his house. Notice the emphasis on great and the large company of tax collectors that are there. So that's why I say if you're to kind of sum up what is happening, you could say that Jesus is inviting a lot of people from a lot of different spectrums of life, tax collectors, sinners. He's inviting them to a wedding. There's more than just this idea of a banquet or a great feast happening. This has pictures. When Jesus is talking bridegroom in the same context of a big feast, we know from last week The Old Testament scriptures talked of a day when the Jewish Messiah would come and it would be a time of feasting and of celebration. And that the Jewish Messiah would be the groom of this new wedding between God and his people. 
So for example, listen to Hosea 2.17. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. Betroth is, by the way, a word to say like engaged and pledged to be married. So this Old Testament prophet Hosea is saying, there will be a day when you will call me husband. This is God, the Lord, speaking. You're going to call me husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Similarly, there's other passages that speak of this day and it being full of feasting and not fasting. So Zechariah 8, 18, the word of the Lord came and said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fasts on the fourth month and the fasts on the fifth month and the fasts on the seventh month, the fasts on the tenth month, all of them will be turned to seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Friends, you see what's happening in the Old Testament prophets. There will be a day when A, there will be God betrothing and marrying his people. Jesus is saying in this passage, that's me. I am God, and I am marrying these people. B, the Old Testament prophets are saying there will be a day when all those fasts, neglecting and denying yourself food and subjecting yourself in mourning and longing for the day for the Messiah to come, that day will end because the Messiah will come and there will be feasting instead of fasting. This is the Old Testament context of why I would sum up this passage of saying that this first meal of Jesus in Luke's gospel is a meal of Jesus, the bridegroom, inviting people to his wedding and saying, feast with me. But as you'll see, one of the main problems of this is who Jesus is inviting. The all-inclusive everyone, the tax collectors and sinners... Did you see that in verse 30? And Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. It's, it's the word from the Old Testament, by the way, when the Israelites are grumbling in the wilderness because they don't have the food that they wanted. Grumbling. Complaining. The Pharisees and scribes are complaining. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, in their minds, is being too inclusive he needs better discernment. He should know better. If he's going to call himself a Jewish rabbi and make the claim that the kingdom of God is coming upon his appearance, that he needs to realize that this action is making him ritually and morally unclean. What, what's the big deal? That's, that's the question I kept asking myself. What's the big deal of Jesus eating this meal with tax collectors and sinners? The Jewish rule book, if you want to put it that way. So there's the Jewish Bible, but then they had a separate rule book called the Mishnah. And this rule book would interpret the Old Testament Bible and explain traditions. And in it, they would put thieves, robbers, and tax collectors all in the same group. That's why he says tax collectors and sinners, because tax collectors are these terrible sinners. They're like thieves and robbers. 
even the conservative and liberal priests in the Mishnah. So you've got two different groups, conservative priests, Jewish priests that are liberal, meaning that some are real strict and some are a little loosey-goosey. They agreed on very few things, but one of the things they agreed on is that it was okay to lie to a tax collector. That's okay. Don't lie in other circumstances, but if it's a tax collector, just lie to him and tell him that, yeah, that's all the money I've got. Furthermore, the Mishnah would say that your house would be unclean if a tax collector walked into it, and it would need to be purified. I started reading these things and finding that, okay, that's, that's starting to make more sense why these Pharisees, this group of Jews that are really strict to the Torah, the Old Testament law, and, and followed these Mishnah rules would say, yeah, what is Jesus doing eating, fellowshipping in a meal, breaking bread, and, and identifying with people like this? Furthermore, why is he calling one of them to follow him and be his student? He's going to teach him, and he's going to take him under his wing. Why in the world is Jesus doing this? The more I put myself in the Pharisees' shoes, the more, honestly, I was not looking down on the Pharisees, the more I was sympathetic, like, yeah, why is Jesus doing this? If, if you're not feeling that way yet, let me try and use an extended illustration in modern day to say, what if tax collectors lived today? And I know today is the weekend of Independence Day and 4th of July, and there's lots of patriotism all over, and I don't, by this illustration, want to diminish. In fact, I'm hoping by this illustration we will all the more appreciate the freedom and the independence and the safety and the military and the men and women who have died for our nation. As you celebrate your independence, if you're here and you're American, and I don't want to assume all of us here are Americans, but I'm assuming a lot of us are, and we're thankful for our independence. You ever just ask yourself, what would happen if we lost our independence? This is what I mean. I want us to appreciate our independence and think, what if, what if one of our greatest enemies and threats to the American safety, ISIS, took over? What, what if they just overthrew our government structures? Chaos, fear, panic. I'm not trying to be fear-mongering in this illustration. I just want you to think for a second. What if ISIS grew really strong, took over America, and all of your taxes had to go to them. How would that make you feel? I'm sure some of you don't enjoy paying taxes right now, and I'm sure some of you aren't even happy with the way our government spends our taxes right now. But it could be a lot worse, couldn't it? Like a whole lot worse. For instance, what if ISIS took over Washington, D.C., but because they didn't have enough government officials or workers for them, that they started hiring Americans and giving them lots of money to do jobs for them. And let's say one of those jobs was to work the toll roads. They decided that they're going to get rid of all I-passes, and all toll roads will now be manned by men and women who work for ISIS. And by the way, there's no credit card usage. It's only ISIS cash. They've got rid of all of our U.S. monetary system, and they now use coins and dollar bills. And on the picture of these coins and dollar bills 
are radical Muslims with big guns standing before an American man as he is bowing down before the Muslim. Now, any of you thinking, I don't ever want that to happen, and if it were to happen, I would never want to drive on the toll roads ever again. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to not only appreciate my American independence and freedoms and securities, but I'm also appreciating my iPass. It's convenient, right? It keeps traffic flowing. You don't have to worry about the right to change the right change in your car and throw coins in and hold everyone up as you get out of the car and find missing coins. So you may not like paying tolls, and you may enjoy the iPass because one of the benefits of an iPass is if you don't know and don't have one, you get a discount. So the toll, let's say it's a dollar on I-90. Well, you could pay 50 cents instead of a dollar. Like, this is a really good deal. What a wonderful system. It could be a lot worse. Imagine at these toll booths where there's no iPass and all of your funds are going to fund the ISIS government. What if these men and women who are working for these toll booths are taxing you double? They're, they're enacting a, a service charge, and they're telling you, hey, well, yeah, it's a, it's a dollar. Well, it's actually a dollar twenty-five. It's, it's more than that because uh, we have an extra service charge, and there's nothing you can do about it because they have all the backing of the military. They have all the backing of the government, and there's no just judge that's going to tell you otherwise. Any of you hating this story so far? Like, this is a horrible illustration, Pastor Phil. If you are starting to hate even the idea, and praise God that in his kindness and grace, this is not the world we live in in America right now. This was the world that these people in the Bible lived in. Roman government lived in Rome, hired out Jewish people in the land of Israel to work for Rome, set up tax booths, They'd send all their money a year in advance. So let's, let's just say for the sake of illustration, you pay a million dollars to Rome. And you say, look, we're going to give you a million dollars for this year's taxes. So they got to make a million, and then they want to make some more than a million. So then they start saying, look, we're going to charge this amount so that way we get more than that. And there's a general tax collector, a chief tax collector, you could say, as we'll find later in this series in Luke 19, who set the rate at a certain price. But that each individual tax collector that's at the booth, they might add even a little bit more to pocket themselves. And these tax collectors would ask these Jewish men and women to pay with coins like the one on the screen that you're about to see now. This is a little after the time of Jesus, but this is a first century coin. And here you have Caesar Vespian, imperial lord of the world. And then here, look at this second back side of the coin. The victory of Augustus, it says, inscribed. And there you have a Roman soldier with a sword and a Jewish man. I don't know if his like, foot is like on him or just kneeling down before the Roman soldier. Friends, are you starting to wrap your minds around why tax collectors were despised, hated? If this were you, put yourself in the shoes of the Jewish men and women of your day. This would be awful, terrible. 
to pay that kind of money to people who are ripping you off, to a government that you hate that stole your land. You can put the picture down. These tax collectors are traitors. They're criminals, extortionists. They're greedy. I'm starting to sympathize a little more with the Pharisees. What in the world is Jesus doing? Eating. And furthermore, calling a man like that to be a part of his wedding. Let me put it this way. When you were making your wedding list, were people like these tax collectors on your guest list? My guess was unless you have a really crazy uncle or a strange cousin and mom and dad made you, like these are the kind of people you don't invite to your big wedding day. Embassy church members, would you invite anybody like this to this church? I was thinking, let's say you had a choice. Let's say we could have a new group of people come. Would you like them to be more like the new families with kids that finished seminary, that made disciples, great evangelists, they want to serve in the kids' ministry, and oh, they're great musicians. Would you like more of those people to join embassy? Great tithers? Or would you like the drug dealer, the abortion clinic leader, Somebody that's been the head of the LGBT agenda, a palm reader, a well-known rapist, a child abuser. Realize these are the people that Jesus is eating with in this home when it says there was a great banquet and it was full of Levi and all of his friends. It was that kind of people that Jesus is eating with. Do you see now why he's saying, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Who would you be more excited about coming to Embassy Church? That's what's going on in this passage. Jesus is inviting a lot of sketchy people to his wedding. Why, though? The all-important why. Second, what is happening is that Jesus is inviting people to his wedding It's because Jesus is the great physician who can heal anyone. Friends, if you do not see that very important passage, verse 31, and you only look at Jesus hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners, then you will make the great error that many even scholars have made and say phrases like, well, I should associate and hang out with these people all the time too. And I should have no problems going to bars and strip clubs and doing different things and for the sake of tolerance and in- inclusion and, and, and all these different choices that you might make that are, are questionable because I'm going to be like Jesus. One scholar in the Jesus Seminar was known for saying Jesus is the ultimate party animal. See, that's what we should be like. Let's party like Jesus. Isn't that what this whole Meals with Jesus series is about, Pastor Phil? That we've got... Jesus. He is our groom, and everything's great, and he loves and accepts sinners, and so therefore, we'll just hang out with all of these bad people. 
Jesus is not tolerant of sin. Look at verse 30 and 31 again. They're asking, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it's funny that here they're asking the disciples, and the disciples don't get a chance to talk. Jesus says, I'll answer that one. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is calling Levi when he says, follow me. He's calling him to repentance. He is not tolerating his sin. He is not encouraging him to keep living up his sin and being a tax collector. No, no, Matthew, Levi, same guy, different name. He left everything, including his sinful life, to follow Jesus. Repentance means to change, to have a turn of direction. Ultimately, Jesus wants to heal Levi. He's a sick man. Would we all agree after that long explanation? Like, that's, those ISIS people, like literally, the ISIS people, around, they are sick in their heart people. And they would go into places and shoot up clubs and run their planes into buildings. Like, this is, you're sick. And Jesus goes after really, really sick people like that. He's a great physician. One of the main things you should be taking away from this story is that Jesus has the power to heal anyone with any sickness. And we're not talking mostly about physical sickness. We're talking about spiritual sickness. Notice Jesus' own words. He's not talking about physical sickness. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the sort of sickness he's talking about. Sin-sick people. Not the people that think of themselves as righteous. They're self-righteous. They, they think, I'm healthy. I'm, I'm good. I don't need a doctor. It seems to me that Jesus, throughout the Gospels, specializes in really sick people. He's not just your general doctor. He's the one you go to when that general doctor doesn't know the answer. And you need to go to a specialist. Jesus is that kind of specialist. He specializes in helping really, really sick people. J.C. Ryle says, no sin-sick soul is too far gone for Jesus. He displays his glory by healing and restoring the most desperate souls. He has unfailing skill for unwearied tenderness and long experiences of man's spiritual sickness, the great physician of souls stands alone. There is no doctor like him. Have you ever been to a doctor that says, I'm sorry, there's nothing else we can do. We've exhausted all our options. As I was thinking about that, my heart leapt and rejoiced. Jesus Christ will never, ever say those words. He will never look down and say, sorry, there's nothing else I can do. He is powerful to save. Let your soul be strengthened this morning that he is that kind of doctor. The kind of doctor who can save any soul. So think right now, who is it that you're doubting right now? There's no chance that they'll ever become a Christian. 
What family member? What friend? What neighbor? What ISIS terrorist? And remind yourself, he does save people like that. He saved Levi. He saved you. What kind of doctor only sees healthy people? You ever been to the doctor and says, sorry, I only do well checks. You're sick? Oh, find another doctor. It'd be a nice gig, wouldn't it, if you're a doctor? Only healthy people, probably keep a light schedule, wouldn't have to worry about them infecting you and getting you sick, all their messes and diseases. What kind of custodial worker says, I I don't deal with messes. I don't clean that kind of stuff. I only clean clean houses. What kind of church doesn't long for sick people to come in? What kind of Christian doesn't know that they themselves are sick with sin? If you're struggling to see yourself in this passage, you're the tax collector and sinner. I'm not saying that you're extortionist. I'm not saying you're working for some corrupt government system. I'm saying that you are desperately in need of a Savior because you are sick. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not familiar with what it means to be a Christian or become a Christian or what is Christianity all about, it begins with understanding that God made the world and everything in it and it was good and there were no sick people, but sin came into the world. And it infected all of us. And this disease is contagious by birth. That's how contagious it is. You you born, well, then you have the sickness. The good news is, is that our great physician, Jesus Christ, has created churches that you could call hospital beds for you to come and be ministered to. Receive the good news of his healing power through his blood Which brings us to our last point. What is Jesus doing in this passage? He is inviting everyone and a large group of outsiders to his wedding because he knows he can heal anyone. How though? How does he do this? Answer, through the new covenant of his blood. Through the new covenant of his blood. Where do you see the new covenant of his blood? It's in this story about fasting. Particularly, it's in this parable, the two parables that Jesus tells in verse 36 and following. He he first tells a parable about a piece of a garment that you take a clean new piece and put it on an old one. You don't do that because the old one has probably already shrunk. And so if you put the new one on the old one, not only do they not match, but if that one shrinks, it's going to rip the other piece of garment. The point here is that Something new has arrived, and it's not a new patch to be added on the old system. Something new has arrived, and Jesus is that new thing. Jesus' blood is that new thing. There will now for be no more sacrifices and blood guilt offerings at the temple. That old way is gone, and a new way has come. He tells a second illustration about wineskins and says that wineskins, after they get old, they get hard and brittle. And after they're hard and brittle, they don't have any give in them. So think of a balloon that's fully blown up. And then imagine adding new wine in it or new air in it 
what's going to pop? It's going to burst. You'll lose the wine and you'll lose the old wine skin. Because when you put new wine in, it's going to ferment and the gases that release are going to make it expand. So if you've got a, a balloon that's full capacity, like a wineskin, it's already stretched out and it's already kind of hardened over and it's, it's kind of delicate. You don't add new wine in it. That's a mistake. Jesus is the new wine. Something new has come on the scene and it doesn't mix with the old. You need something new for it. You need a new covenant. The old covenant is being contrasted with the new covenant. The promises that we read earlier of a day when the bridegroom will come and there will be feasting and not fasting and that there will be a new day where healing comes for all nations. That is coming through Jesus Christ. And that's what he's trying to say in this parable. Sadly, though, there are too many in verse 39 that are saying after they drink the old wine, yeah, I still want the old stuff. And they reject Jesus. You see, in the old way, fasting was commanded at least once a year in the Day of Atonement. It's not clear whether or not Jesus is here on the Day of Atonement. It's not likely. He's out in Galilee. He's not by the temple. But it's more than likely that these Pharisees, remember the Mishnah, the the traditions of these Jewish scribes? They would fast twice a week, I think on Monday and Thursday, if I'm getting my facts straight. So they fasted not just on the Day of Atonement, the commanded day that you were supposed to fast and afflict yourself, deny yourself food. They were like, well, let's be super spiritual. Let's make sure we're really renewing our hearts to make the Messiah come. And so they fasted twice a week. That's why we read Luke chapter 18 earlier in the service. Did you guys notice that? You've got two people in the temple. One of them says, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I fast twice a week. Jesus' disciples did not fast. How could they? They were at a wedding. They were with the bride. They have been invited to feast, not fast. They're invited to participate in the kingdom of God coming, celebrate. You guys ever been somewhere and somebody is like, Sorry, I'm fasting. I'm not going to eat. It gets a little like awkward. That's what he's saying here. The awkwardness of somebody coming to a big wedding party and the whole point is to celebrate the love between the bride and the groom. You're like, no, I'm fasting. I'm going to afflict myself and I won't eat anything. I'm just going to stay over here in the corner and look sad. You're missing the point. Why'd you even come to the wedding? You see, the old and the new, they don't mix. Fasting and mourning for the Messiah to come doesn't make any sense if he's already here. Do you know any ugly brides? You ever been to a wedding? Like, oh, she doesn't look so good. (laughs) I don't think I've ever been to a wedding where I've been like, You know, they should have stayed in that room a little longer. (laughs) Brides are always beautiful on their wedding day. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the prophet Jeremiah says, Does a young woman forget her jewelry, and does a bride forget her wedding gown? 
but my people have forgotten me. The point of this is to say brides never forget their jewelry. They never forget their makeup. I mean, not only have you never been to a wedding where the bride looks really ugly, you've certainly never been to a wedding where they just forgot, oh, I forgot my wedding dress. Brides look amazing on their wedding day. Stunning. But where does this come from? Jesus is inviting you to a wedding, and guess what? He's not inviting you to the guest list, to be a bridesmaid, to be a groomsman, to be an usher. He's bowing down and he's saying, will you be my bride? And some of you might be thinking, I don't look so beautiful right now. I look ugly and I'm sick. I don't deserve that kind of groom. And you would be right. But the blood of Jesus covers over and washes all of your sin. Revelation 19 says, The wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride is ready with fine linens, bright and clean, and they were given to her to wear. She did not make them herself. She did not get these gowns. They were given to her. And it says, in Revelation 19, these fine linens that she wore are the righteous acts of God's holy people. You need righteousness to stand before a holy, righteous God. Otherwise, we're going to stand at that wedding and be like, whoa, 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 what is going on here? We've got this wonderful, nice-looking groom and this hideous-looking bride. They do not go together. That's not the wedding that Jesus is inviting you to. He is inviting you to a wedding, and he's telling you, not only do I want to marry you, but I want to clean you up, and you will be radiant and gorgeous, and you'll be the most stunning you have ever looked in your life. But how? Where does this come from? Where in our text, by the way, is it talking about the blood of Jesus? Some of you might be saying, yeah, I get the idea that the old and new don't match, and so, okay, the old and new covenant, but where is the blood referenced? Look at Jesus' words again in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. What are the days when the bridegroom is taken away when they will fast again? And again, notice this is not talking generally about fasting. It is talking about the mourning, sadness, the tears flowing, that the bridegroom's not with us kind of fasting. So this is not a sermon about why we should or shouldn't fast. We see in Acts that disciples of Jesus did still fast. If you make a practice of fasting, that's perfectly fine and normal. It's just it shouldn't be the kind of fasting that's saying, Messiah, come. I'm longing and mourning and waiting for the day for you to arrive. He did arrive, but he'll be taken away. What is that being referred to? What is that reference to? Our Old Testament scripture reading, Isaiah 53, verse 8. Almost the exact words are used in the Greek translation of this phrase that is now used by Jesus' words to say he will be taken away. Isaiah 53, verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, 
who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people. Not only is Jesus fulfilling the promise to be the groom of his bride and bring a day when there'll be no more fasting but feasting, but he's also fulfilling the promise of being the servant who by his stripes and through his blood, your wounds will be healed, the great physician. By his blood, by his death on a cross, by becoming the suffering servant, Jesus heals you. Therefore, you become a pure, spotless, radiant bride. And all of heaven in Revelation 19 is rejoicing, and they're glad, and there's thunder, and there's clapping, and there's shouting. Why? Because the bride is a radiant bride before her groom. I hope this morning that you not only see that Jesus is inviting you, not just to his wedding, but to be the bride because he can save, he can heal anyone, no matter where you are at in your life, no matter how sick you are. And I hope that you realize that through his blood, he will, in fact, make you radiantly pure and beautiful. You are that in his eyes right now. Get your identity shaped around that, my friend. See yourself the way Jesus sees you. You ever been rejected? Well, you've been accepted by the greatest person in all of the universe. You've been accepted by the greatest doctor. He didn't turn you away. He, he didn't say, I've got nothing else I can do. He's done a lot by his blood. Will you receive this invitation this morning and wrap your whole identity and life around this and not anything else anyone in the world could say? That's the call in Luke chapter 5. Let's pray.